There we go. All right, so technology working wonderfully this morning. Uh, for some reason, the projector will project when the PowerPoint is playing, but will not project the screen, which it normally does. So if you're wondering why the photo is up there without the rest of the normal background, that's why. The only way to get it to work, and rather than call IT down here and have them take up a big chunk of our class trying to fig figure it out, I'll let them worry about it after class. Since the PowerPoints work, we can get through the rest of the class fine. It was only our picture that is thrown off a little bit. So I did want to put it up there and at least mention it in case it's one of the ones I ask you about uh, for the exam. So just as reminders, homework one is due today. So you have, that means if you, I think I've seen three or four already turned in on D2L, which is great. Uh, if you're turning in a paper copy, make sure you get that to me before you go. Um, you can turn it into the secretary. They'll give you a receipt, which counts as your time. Uh, if you're turning it on D2L, that's great. Uh, just make sure it's there by six o'clock tomorrow. Um, I can take it slightly late for partial credit, but not very because it's 6 p.m., not a.m., but tomorrow evening I'll release the answers so you can review them because I won't have time to get these back to you before with you any reasonable time to study for the exam. So if you want to review my answers, they will appear at 6 p.m. At that point, the drop box is locked and I cannot take it for credit. Obviously, once I give you the answers, I can't take it and give you credit for it anymore. So I'm doing that just so you have a chance to review them if you choose for the exam. So again, get them in by six o'clock tomorrow morning and you're fine, and then tomorrow evening, you'll have a chance to be able to look at the, look at the answers and review those. So homework one, due today. Um, review quizzes up on D2L. There's three of them for this unit, chapter, one for chapter one, one for chapters two and three, and one for chapter four. Those are due by 8.30 in the morning next time, so Wednesday, right before the exam. You can use those right up until the exam. Remember, your first try on them is worth a small amount of extra credit. And then after that, you can keep taking them as many times as you want to help review some of the multiple choice questions for the exam. Uh, whatever you get the first time is what's recorded in the gradebook. And then the exam will be next time. And I've repeated the details that I gave you last time here. There will be 30 multiple choice questions. And just remember, I divide it up into units, not chapters. So it'll be 10 per unit. So 10 questions from chapter one, 10 combined from chapters two and three, and then 10 from chapter four, which we'll be going over today. There are a couple of essays. There is one required essay, which has four or five parts. And again, my essays can be answered in a sentence or two, or I might ask you to draw a diagram of something, to sketch something. Not artistic ability, is not graded for this class, but I might ask you to sketch, if we talk about eclipses today, I could ask you to sketch you know, where the Earth, Moon, and Sun would be during an eclipse. That would be you know, something that would be reasonable for an essay. Um, otherwise, you can usually answer them in a sentence or two, and as I said, no uh, calculations uh, will be involved in them. Uh, so there's one that's required, I have you do that one, and then there are three, one from each of the three units, you pick two of those. So you pick two of them to answer and clearly mark which one you don't, and I'll go over that again next time as well. And then as I get down to the end and running out of space, there will be four or five. I haven't, I'm just finishing making it up, so I don't know for sure if there'll be, end up being four or five. Uh, multiple choice, uh, photo of the day, extra credit questions. So those are a few extra credit points that can help you towards the exam. Remember the key point sheets that I gave you the first day. You can use those 
for the exam. You can have those with you during the exam. No other books or notes, but you can have those. You can write any notes you want. So if you want to write yourself reminders of what each of the pictures we talked about were for each day we met, wouldn't be a bad thing to write someplace on there on the back of one of the sheets or someplace, you know, write in what you ha had for those. That might give you a reminder. Anything else that you think you might forget or want to know during the exam. You can have that on there. You can't add extra sheets or anything else, but you can use those sheets that I gave you uh, first day of class. So, questions? Already? I know I think I saw three or four homeworks already submitted this morning, so that was great. Um, I will start looking at those tomorrow, but again, I won't have them back to you uh, until, well, at the exam would be the earliest, if not until next week. And then we do have the article review coming up. So I know you're not going to be looking at that probably the next couple of days with the exam coming up first, but then this weekend, if you haven't already started picking out an article or looking at one, uh, you'll want to do that and get that first review in um, Monday. All right. Well, let's go ahead and see if we can clear that and start off with our picture for today. So we lost a little bit of it there, but this is today's picture. This is a lunar corona. So... That's the moon there in the center. And this was taken several, this is about a five-year-old image. And when we look at the moon through the clouds, through a very thin cloud, you can sometimes get this pattern around it. Looks very much like a rainbow. It's caused by a slightly different effect, though. A rainbow is caused when light bounces or refracts off the off inside of rain droplets. So it goes through the rain droplets, it bounces off, and as it goes through those, it splits the light up into its component colors. In this case, it is caused by a different uh, effect, in fact, a quantum mechanical effect uh, of the light diffracting around the rain droplets. So it's similar, but as you know, when you see a rainbow, right, a rainbow doesn't appear right around the sun, it's opposite to the sun, it's way off in the other side of the sky. These ones will go around, and it's when you look at the moon, sometimes through relatively thin clouds, you might be able to get this pattern. Not always. You also have to have raindrops that are very uniform in size to get the pattern. So if you've got wide variety of raindrop sizes, depending on the conditions, you might not be able to see this. But when that happens, the light is diffracted, curved around the raindrops, and then, just like the rainbow, it splits based on the wavelengths of light. That's one of the things we'll uh, be covering in Chapter 5. We'll talk a little bit more about light. But it splits out. The reds have very long wavelengths. The blues and violets have very short wavelengths. So they get bent differently around the raindrops, and they get split up. Just as when forming a regular rainbow, the wavelengths bend differently going through those raindrops. So here they just got a really nicely framed image of the city off in the distance there and the trees but then the moon and its corona looking through. Corona has different meanings because we will also go back and talk about, um, well, when we finish our unit here of the other things, the next thing we'll talk about is the sun. And we'll talk about a corona of the sun. Now, you can get this effect with the sun. Usually the sun's just so overwhelmingly bright that you don't really see it. So imagine putting the sun here, it would overwhelm the rainbow effect right around it. But you do have, there is a corona which is part of the sun's atmosphere, which is a different type of thing. So sometimes you'll have different terminology that can relate to the same things, or to different things.
Same terminology, different things. We'll get that right. All right, questions? So that's the last of the pictures that will be asked, that I might ask about for the exam on the, on the um, photo of the day question. So any of the ones that we've seen from August 26th, any class that we met are ones that are fair game on there. I won't ask you about any others uh, as well, at, at all. All right, well, then since I had to put that right in my slides, we'll just go ahead from the slides. And as I recall, hopefully I recall correctly, we were finishing up motion and we'd gone through a lot of gravity, but, I did, but we had orbital motion to finish up, which is a short section at the end that I wanted to talk a little bit about orbits. Did I, did I cover or did I not? Nobody's telling me yes, we did, so... I know we had, I believe we had gone through all the, all the other sections, but I don't know if I'd given all of the definitions. So, uh, some of the terminology that we use when we look at orbits are perihelion and aphelion. These apply to things orbiting around the sun. So, peri meaning close, the prefix, the suffix helion just meaning sun. Helion, helios referring to the sun. So perihelion referring to the closest approach of any object to the sun, whether it be a planet or a comet or an asteroid or anything else. Anything orbiting the sun would have a perihelion when it's closest to it, and an aphelion would be when it's furthest away. So in our diagram here, there's the sun. Perihelion would be its closest approach right here of a, pla of a planet, and over here it would be further away would be its furthest distance. Anything else is going to be in between. So as you move around, you're going to be furthest away, and you're getting closer and closer and closer. You reach your closest point, and then you're going to get further and further away again. Now, for the Earth, we use the same similar terminology. You may hear talk about a satellite. You can have apogee and perigee. You know, prefixes are the same, closest and furthest away. But we use G for the Earth for geo or geography type things, so as the suffix referring to Earth, and apogee for the furthest away approach. So if you talk about a satellite orbiting the Earth, our moon, an artificial satellite, you would say perigee or apogee. There would also be different terminology for different planets if you were talking about Jupiter. There is a spacecraft orbiting around Jupiter, which is in a very elliptical orbit, even more so than this. So it zips in and has its para-jove, jove being the suffix for Jupiter. So para-jove and it would be an apogee. So you could apply it to any different object. Uh, there'd be a, this, the prefix would be the same, but the suffix would then refer to what the object that is being orbited. So when we look at orbits, those are just some definitions. Some of the, they are determined by what we just went over last time from Newton's laws. Newton's law of gravitation. I'm sorry. We went over this. Picture. We did do this? Yeah. We're, um, were we on to chapter four then? Okay. Yeah, See, past, I could not remember. Thank you. We're past, um, the season. Okay. If you need to go review it, the video is up there. Thank you very much then. Yeah. So I want to get us, keep us caught up then. So we're ready for this. I did, I did the first part. I have to do seasons. Um, I think we started seasons. Let's see. Let me see where we are then. I think we're on to keeping time. Oh, we're on to keeping time. 
See, I was thinking we were still finishing that. I guess we were actually slightly ahead. If you need to review, of course, use my links. There's the YouTube links that are up there for those. But that way I make sure we get through everything we need for, for the exam. So thank, thank you very much. I should have gone back to listen to my old recording and see, but I was trying to rush, and then that kind of threw me off when the technology wasn't working properly. So keeping time we're on to. Okay, so sorry for jumping there. Good review now. So now make sure hopefully aphelion and perihelion will be on the exam, right? Because we went over those twice. I won't make any promises. So keeping time. We talked about some of this in chapter two. Early on, astronomers were developing the calendar. So everything we use for time was based on astronomical events. Our day is the Earth's rotation. How long does it take the Earth to spin on its axis once? Close to 24 hours. That's our day. The week was those seven objects that moved among the stars. The sun, the moon, and the five known planets. So again, if we'd had an extra planet, if we'd had six planets that were known to the ancients, we could have had eight days in a week. If we'd only had five, four of them, then we might have only had six days in a week. So one day named in honor of each of those. The month is related to the phases of the moon. And the year, the revolution of the Earth around the sun. So in terms of measuring these, I mean, some of the problem is, is of course, that they don't line up. They're, they're unrelated. You know, how many objects we happen to see in the sky? Why aren't there an even number of weeks in the year? Right? We say it's 52, but it's not exactly 50. There's always that extra day or two. So, well, this number of objects that we happen to see in the sky has no relation to the year length or the number of days within a year. The number of days don't necessarily match up either. So there's some problems that things don't always match up because of the way we've defined time based on astronomical events. And there are also different measures for many of these. Things like days and months can be measured differently. So how do we measure how long is a day? It's a 24 hours, right? But that's not how long the Earth takes to rotate. In fact, we have different measures of the day. We have the solar day. That's what we use for measuring. We measure our time relative to the sun. But there's also a sidereal day relative to the stars. Those two days are not the same. They're very close. The sidereal day is 23 hours and 56 minutes long. That's how long it takes the Earth to rotate once. If you're standing out in space just looking at the Earth, pick a spot, watch it, wait for it to come back around again, that takes 23 hours and 56 minutes. So pick some location on the Earth. If you're sitting on the Earth watching the sun, right? sun rises, reaches its highest point, and then sets, if you look at the time from when it reaches its highest point, say here, till it does that again, that takes 24 hours. That's what we use for our day. The difference is because we're moving at the same time. So the image is here. Here, here we are one day. And if we look straight out, we can imagine there's the sun. There's some distant star way off in the distance, not this far away, but many, many times further away. And at that time, at noon, say, local noon, the two are lined up. Now, you wouldn't be able to see the star, obviously, because it's hiding behind the sun, but you could know the directions of it. Now, one rotation later, 
The Earth has gone around, and this point that was pointing in this direction straight up is now pointing straight up again. That star that's way off in the distance is going to appear right where it was before. The star is back to the same spot, 23 hours and 56 minutes and 4 seconds, if you want to be precise, later. But the sun isn't because we're closer to the sun and because we've moved a little ways of the way around in our orbit. We're seeing the sun from a slightly different perspective and it takes a short amount of time for the Earth to rotate so that this point now points back to the sun again. So four minutes later, or three minutes and 56 seconds later, we then point back towards the sun. So there's two different timings there because the Earth is undergoing two motions at once. It's rotating on its axis. That's what gives us our day very closely. But it's also moving around the sun. And because we measure our day relative to the sun, then that, would be, then that makes the difference. Otherwise, if, we were me- if our day measured by the actual Earth's rotation, it would constantly be off by four minutes every day. That adds up real quick, right? In the course of a month, that's two hours. After a few months, you know, daytime, we'd be meeting in the middle of the, ni- middle of the night. Because that four minutes would add up over the, you know, if you start, start at daytime, but time would still be the same, but your actual meeting relative to the sun would be constantly changing you by four minutes every day. So two hours a month, four hours over two months, six hours over three months, you're going to be way off. So if you think about how quick that's happening, that has nothing to do with leap years. Right? That's way too fast. That's changing very quickly. In just a few months, you're going to be off very, very much. So there are different times here. But we measure relative to the solar day, which is why the sun is generally in the same position. There's some slight changes, right? Sun will rise and set later, but not to this effect where you're going to be off by six hours over the course of just a semester. So when we measure solar time, there are a couple, there are also different versions of solar time. There is apparent solar time. This is what you use if you use a sundial, put a sundial out there, measuring its, sh- measuring the sh- its shadow, pointing to what the time is. That is apparent solar time based on where the sun is in the sky right now. It's not the same from day to day. Sometimes the sun moves quicker. Sometimes, sometimes it moves more slowly. Right? We, just, we covered that in the previous chapter. Kepler's second law, when we're close to the sun, we're moving faster. But of course, we on Earth then see the sun as moving faster in the sky. When we're far away from the sun, We're moving slower, but we see the sun is moving slower in the sky. So it's the apparent time. That is where the sun is, but it's not the same from day to day. We kind of like our days to be the same, and we don't want some days being a few minutes longer and some days being a few minutes shorter. makes things rather difficult. So what we do is we average it out and take the mean or average solar day. That's really what our day is. It is exactly 24 hours. So the mean solar day is 24 hours. It averages out the apparent solar days, which could be a little bit longer or a little bit shorter. When we're close to the sun in January, moving a little bit faster, the days would be slightly shorter by apparent solar time. But we average them out over the course of the year to make them come out even. 
We also use time zones, right? Time zones to minimize the time zones because really apparent solar time depends on where you are on the Earth. So the sun is going to be in a different place in the sky here, right, towards the eastern part of the U.S. than if you travel uh, west into Ohio, Michigan. They're still part of the eastern time zone, but if you measure where the sun is right now, it's going to be in different places in them because they're at different points on the Earth's surface. So their apparent solar time would be different, but we switch them. We say we're all in the same time zone. You don't want to travel from here to Pittsburgh and have one time and then have to travel further west um, into you know, Youngstown across the border into Ohio. The time is slightly different. And then further west into Toledo, it's different. Your time would constantly be changing as you traveled. And you know that it does. We have time zones, but you've got to travel quite a ways to get out of the time, out of the time zone. So we have, within the continental U.S., there's four different time zones, depending on where you are. So it's to minimize changes so you don't have to constantly adjust your time as things move, move as you move across the country or around the world. Now, we also use daylight savings time which is really not astronomical and has no meanings at all astronomically. It is simply a shifting of the time. No time goes anywhere. No time comes anywhere. We, uh, in, the, in the fall, right, we set our clocks backward, so we make a day longer than it normally is. You have a 25-hour day. In the spring, you set it forward, and you lose an hour. One day is 23 hours long. All that does is shift when the daylight is, so in the summer, we shift it so that the sun, you get more sunlit hours in the evening than in the morning. If you get up early in the, more, in the summer, the sun can be up at 5 o'clock in the morning. If it wasn't for the shift, it would be up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And if it's setting, say, at 10 o'clock, it would be setting at 9 o'clock. So the whole idea is just to shift the daylight hours into the evening out of, out of the morning. That's all it does. So it doesn't really have any astronomical meaning as the other things do, like the day and the week and the month, etc., now, as the problem, as I mentioned, is when you put all these together, they don't work out perfectly because they're things that are unrelated to each other. There's no relationship between how long it takes the Earth to spin on its axis once and how long it takes the moon to go around the Earth and how long it takes the Earth to go around the sun. So when we try to calculate them, right, there are, on average, 29.5306 days in a month. And there are 365.2422 days in a year. So this leads to things like, you know, why do the months not add up? We have to change the lengths of the months. But you also have to tie in the fact that there's a certain number of days in a year. So things kind of get a little strange where you have lots of months with 30 and 31 days, but you put one with 28 just to kind of balance things out and make the average number of days in a month over the course of years come out to be about the average. Same thing with years. Just like that four minutes adds up, would add up over the, if we tried to use sidereal time, it would add up over the course of just a few months. This quarter of a day adds up pretty quickly too. So our year is 365 days long. But, it's, but the, sun, the Earth actually takes almost an extra quarter of a year to go around the sun. So each day, or each, um, 
That's about six hours every year that it's off. So it adds up six hours. Next year, you're off 12 hours. Then you're off 18. Then you're off 24, 30. You keep going further and further off. After just you know, a few tens of years, it's starting to shift very drastically. So that's what's going to bring in the leap years. So why do we get leap years? Well, if the Earth took exactly 365 days to go around the sun, we wouldn't have them. We wouldn't need them. The Earth within one year would be 365 days, and as next year will be, we know, 366 days. We have to add that extra day in because, well, 0.2422 is pretty close to a quarter. So if you add in an extra day every four years, it brings everything back into alignment. But not quite, and that's what we're going to see coming up. I wanted to mention a few of the early calendars, first of all. We talked earlier about Stonehenge. We had some alignments, the rising, setting of the sun and the moon. Um, other cultures used other things. So uh, Stonehenge and Europeans had a lot of things based on the sun and or the moon in terms of their alignments. But other cultures used other astronomical objects. So the Mayans gave us a really complex calendar based on the motions of Venus. Okay, that was the brightest star-like object in the sky. Sun is different. The moon, you can see the moon out there. You can actually see the disk. You can see features of it. Of the, of the star-like objects, we know it's a planet, but when you look at it with your naked eye, you can't tell the difference, except that it's so bright. So they gave us a very complex object calendar based on that. The Chinese used Jupiter. Jupiter takes 12 years to orbit the sun. And if you know the Chinese zodiac, right, there's 12 animals for each section of the Chinese for each year. So that goes through a cycle matching the cycle of Jupiter. So not just fixed with one, but there are other cultures that have used other alignments as well. So the Mayans and their pyramids are all lined up with longest risings and settings of Venus at different times of the year or different times of its long cycle. And that's why they came up with their calendar that said, right, the, the world was going to end on... In, December 21st of 2012, or whatever it was. So that was all based on, well, that wasn't their prediction, that was people's predictions of their calendar, because that was when it came to, that was when their calendar essentially came to an end. So you can base your calendar on different things. It doesn't have to be based on what we use today. So the leap years, I wanted to come back to that. We have our calendar uh, given to us by Julius Caesar, gave us the basics of our calendar. Well, 365.2422 is pretty close to 365 and a quarter. So if we add a leap year every fourth year, that'll keep the calendar from shifting over time. The problem is, it's about 11 minutes off. So 11 minutes a year over a lifetime would be what, over... 80, if you did 100 years just to make it easy, it would be about 1,100 minutes. 1,200 minutes, 100, it would be a couple hours over a lifetime. You're not going to notice, right? right? Over the course of a, even a 100-year lifetime, you're not going to really notice a difference. However, over thousands of years, it does add up. So a couple hours every 100 years from the time of Caesar you know, to many hundreds of years later, that 11 minutes adds, because it adds each day. It's all, remember, the year is always a little bit shorter. So we're over-approximating the length of the year. 
So by 1582, spring was starting 10 days earlier. So it was constantly throwing things, throwing the calendar off. Not the actual astronomical motions, right? Our motion around the sun is still exactly the same. But our calendar was slowly shifting by 11 minutes every year. And it would just continue to grow. So the Julian calendar is not what we use today. We actually use a modification of it done by Pope Gregory uh, the 13th in 1582. We'd been adding all these 11 minutes. We'd been adding an extra 11 minutes every year for more than a millennium. So we had to drop 10 days out to make this up. We wanted to get everything back into sync. So that, that year you went to sleep on October 4th and you woke up on October 15th. I hope you got some good rest. Okay. Didn't change anything. It's just like, essentially, it's the same as our uh, shifting, t shifting time with that. It was just adjusting to bring things back into line to take into account that we had slowly added in 10 extra days over 1,500 years. We had slowly been adding those in, and now we have to get rid of them. So we get rid of those days. October 4th becomes... Uh, the day after October 4th was not October 5th, but was October 15th. And to fix it so it didn't happen again, we changed the leap year. We changed how the leap year works. So every fourth year is still a leap year, except for century years. Century years are not leap years. So 1700 was not a leap year. 1800 was not a leap year. 1900 was not a leap year. None of you were around then. You do remember 2000 probably, which was a leap year. Well, it's not perfect. If we get rid of all the century years, then we're still going to be off. So the century years, we essentially want three out of four century years to not be leap years. So the only century years that are leap years, if they're divisible by 400. So 1,700 isn't divisible by 400 evenly. Neither is 1,800 or 1,900, but 2,000 is. So if you stick around for another 80 years from now, 2,100 will not be a leap year. It'll be just an ordinary year. You'll go from a leap year of 2,096. The next leap year will be 2,104. So that kind of brings the average. If you add that average in, it brings it really close where it's time where it's going to take many millennia for it to start slowly drifting again. So it'll take a long, long time for it to be uh, slowly changing. So this brings us pretty good for anything that we need. Even as I said, the Julian calendar works fine for a lifetime. It's over those thousands of years that it slowly adds up. All right, so... Summarizing here, the day is based on the rotation of the Earth. I talked about the solar and sidereal days, and there's that four-minute difference because the Earth orbits the sun as well. The Earth is moving, so we're observing the sun from a moving vantage point. We see it here. A day later, we have moved about one degree around the sun, and it takes four minutes about for the Earth to rotate back to get into the same position. So the sun is actually what we use for our day. We talked about time being related on unrelated astronomical motions. So that's why we have to add things in like leap years to keep the calendar from shifting. That's why all our months aren't exactly the same number of days. Why we have to uh, adjust those to make them fit a little bit better. All right. So questions.
And we're going to talk about the moon a little bit. Not the moon and its features, which we really don't cover in this class, but we want to talk a little bit about what we see of the moon in the sky. So if you looked, saw the moon this weekend at all, pretty nice full moon. Actually, the full moon was on Friday the 13th or Saturday the 14th, depending on exactly where you're located. So, uh, but that was a nice full moon. It's a little bit past full moon now, although even this morning it looked pretty full, a little bit less than full, as it moves around here. So now we're coming around. We were at full moon. Things move around counterclockwise. So we're going to be working in to this set of phases. And two weeks from now, we'll be to the beginning of the phase cycle again. Now, what causes the lunar phases is a combination of two things. First of all, half the moon is always illuminated by the sun. Put some object out in space, half of it's illuminated by the sun, the other half is blocked by the object itself and not going to be illuminated. So if I go stand out in the sunlight facing the sun, my front side may be may illuminated directly by the sun, the back of me is not. It may still be illuminated by other reflected light, but it's not illuminated directly by the sun. So half of the moon is always illuminated. Half the Earth is always illuminated by the sun. Half of Jupiter is always illuminated by the sun. Any object you put out in sunlight. If you take a ball in a dark room with a flashlight, shine a flashlight on it, half of it's illuminated. No matter where you put it relative to the light, you can't illuminate more than half of it. It's always going to be half of that thing that is illuminated. Only one flashlight. You can't bring two in to sneak, in, sneak two in there. And the other part is that half the moon is always visible from the Earth. We could only see half the moon at one time. Right? You can see half of me at one time. You can see my front. But if you're seeing my front, unless there's a mirror behind me, you're not seeing my back. So you can only see half of me at one time. We can only see half the moon at any given time. And what that means is when you combine the two together, depending on where you are, on the, on the, on the, where you're looking at from the moon. So if you're on the Earth here, looking out at the moon, you may see, let's do first quarter. Half of, the, half of it is illuminated, which in this case is the right-hand side of the moon will be illuminated. So as you're standing out here looking at the moon, half of the moon is illuminated. So this whole right-hand side is illuminated. However, we can only see the half that's facing towards us. So if you divide another line, between this, we can only see this portion of the moon. So when we look at a first quarter moon, half of it's illuminated, the right-hand side, and half of it will look dark. That's all we can see. If you do it, jump to third quarter, now you're looking this way, it's just the opposite. Now the left-hand side is illuminated, and the right-hand side will be dark. But still, if you were looking at the moon from space, half of it is illuminated. That does not change. It's just the, part, the illuminated portion that we can see from Earth. So over time, as the moon moves around, right? that's one month, as we talked about. It takes about one month, 29 and a half days for it to go from new cycle all the way around and back to new cycle again. <coughs> Sorry. So that's about one month. So over the course of a month, it will slowly change. So right now, we're somewhere in about here little bit past full. That means we're hitting into what we call the waning phases. There's the waxing phases and the waning phases. The waning phases means that if you go look at the moon today, this morning, and you look at it tomorrow morning and the next morning, you should see a little less of it illuminated each day. Or come back in a week and you'll be closer to third quarter. All of a sudden you'll have gone from full moon, 
Next weekend, we should be pretty close to third quarter moon. Just half of it will be illuminated. And you wait another week or a few more days, and it will get a, become a crescent. And it will become a thinner and thinner crescent until it is none of the illuminated portion is facing the Earth. So at new moon, remember, half is illuminated, but it's the half that's pointing away from the Earth. So we're looking at the unilluminated portion of the moon during a new moon. So we'd be looking here, we look out to the moon, we see this half that's not illuminated. We can't really see it. It's also really close to the sun in the sky, which also makes things difficult to see. And then after we get there, in about two weeks, we'll hit new moon, and then we'll start the waxing phases, meaning you see a thin crescent after sunset, and it will get thicker and thicker till its first quarter, waxing gibbous, until about a month from now, we'll be back to full moon again. So it's a continuous cycle, but it all depends just on these two things. Half is illuminated and half is visible. What part of the illuminated portion can we see from Earth? When it's a crescent, most of the illuminated portion is twisting away from us. We only see a little bit. When it's close to full or gibbous phases, then most of the illuminated portion is pointing towards Earth, and we're going to see it as closer to a full phase. A big chunk of it is going to be illuminated. Now, when we look at them over the course of a month, this is from May of 2005. So here you had a new moon on the 8th. And as you looked at it from day, day after day, you'd see if you went and looked for the moon on May 9th, really hard to find. You'd have to go out right after sunset, know exactly where to look, and you might see this very thin, faint crescent there. But a couple days later, that crescent will get thicker and thicker and be easier to see. So over time, it would get quick, quickly become more and more full until about a week later, about half of the moon is illuminated. Another week later or so, somewhere in here, I think it's actually to the 23rd, you'd have it fully illuminated. And once you're fully illuminated, right, you can't have more than, can't see more than the fully illuminated portion. It's got to become less and less. So over time, it would become less, less, and less until it finally see a very thin crescent in the morning, and then you're back to a new phase, which you cannot see again. So it will slowly change. Now, a couple things you can note. There's different phases. I've given you the names here. New phase. You can have a crescent. It'll be either waxing or waning crescent. Waxing crescent means the right-hand side is illuminated, and you're seeing more and more each day. But if you're just looking at it at one day, is it a waxing or waning crescent, how would you know? Well, you'd have to wait until the next day to watch and see if it's getting thicker or thinner. There's two ways to know. One is that it's which side is illuminated. If it is the right-hand side illuminated, it is waxing. It's going to get bigger and bigger each day. If it's the left-hand side illuminated, it's getting less and less and less illuminated each day. Same thing with the gibbous phase. Gibbous phase, when the right-hand side is illuminated and it's more than half, then you are in the waxing gibbous phase. If it's the right-hand right side illuminated, if it's the left-hand side illuminated, and you'll be seeing less and less each day, that would be the waning gibbous phase. So it'll always go through this cycle every single month. Now, we do have the lunar phase cycle is what we use for our months. But... Like the Earth, we had sidereal and solar time. They're different. So our synodic month is 29 and a half days long. 
That's what I talked to you about before. That's how we measure our month, very close to 30 days. However, there's also a sidereal month. If you just go off in space and you sit there and watch the Earth and the moon, you watch the moon orbit around the Earth and get back to the same spot where it was when you started watching it, it takes 27 days. So like we're not seeing the actual rotation of the Earth when we measure our day, the actual month, how long it really takes the moon to orbit around once, is only a little over 27 days. That's the actual revolution period of the moon. The reason, I'm not going to go through, the, it's the same as the reason for the sun. While the Earth and the moon, while the moon is more orbiting around the Earth, in one month the Earth has moved one-twelfth of the way around. So our perspective relative to the sun has changed, and it's the sun that gives us our seasons. Sun is what illuminates half the moon. So which side is illuminated depends on where it is relative to the sun. So it takes a little more time for us to get back to that same positioning relative to the sun. So which phase we can see depends on the positioning of the sun and the moon. Where are they relative to each other? So if you're looking at a new moon, new moon is over here. The yellow arrows represent the sun, but it's way off in the distance over there. Um, to scale. So this would, be the, this would be the rays of the sun, again, always illuminating half of the moon. The new moon is just in the same direction in the sky as the sun. So it rises with the sun, it sets with the sun. We don't see the new moon because the illuminated portion is pointing away and it's really close to the sun in the sky. So you never see a new moon phase unless there's an eclipse. During an eclipse is when you can see, the only time you can really see a new moon phase. Otherwise, it's simply not visible. The crescent phase, either waxing or waning, is always really close to the direction of the sun in the sky. So you're never going to get up at 2 in the morning and see a crescent moon. Not from our location, at least. Because at 2 in the morning, where's the sun? Way down below the horizon, the crescent moon has to be in that same general direction, so you're not going to be able to see a crescent moon at that hour. You can only see the crescent moon right after sunset, if it's a waxing crescent, or right before sunrise, if it's a waning crescent. So when you think about it, when you see the crescent moon, it's always relatively close to sunrise or sunset. It doesn't have to be perfect. The sun can be down depending on how thick of a crescent it is. The sun could be down a little ways, but you're not going to see it in the middle of the night, way away from sunrise or sunset. Then you get the quarter phase when you're halfway around. So we're seeing half of it, half of it is illuminated. We see one quarter of the moon's illuminated surface. So that would be halfway around. Again, first quarter, right side illuminated. That's visible in the evening. So the time of day that you can see them also matters. If you're seeing a quarter, half the moon illuminated, again, it depends on two things. If it's the right side illuminated, then it's the first quarter. If it's visible in the evening, it's the first quarter. If you can remember one of those two, you can always tell what time, what, what, whether it's first or third quarter. First quarter will always have the right side illuminated, and it will be visible in the evening. Time it at about 6 p.m., but you can see it you know, late afternoon into early evening. So the first quarter moon will be always that time. Third quarter moon is closer to 6 a.m., so if you wake up early and you see a quarter moon, it's the third quarter moon. 
And you'll also note that it's the other side illuminated. It's going to be the left side illuminated, not the right-hand side illuminated. And then you get the gibbous phase, which is over here. That is more than halfway around. Now we've gotten halfway. Now we're more than halfway around from the sun. And you're seeing more of the illuminated section. And then finally you get to full moon. Always opposite to the sun in the sky. So the full moon will always be opposite. So if you watch the actual day of the full moon, sun is going down, moon is coming up. So sun's going down in the west, moon's coming up in the east. If you see the moon, if you see what looks like a full moon while the sun's still up, you're probably still in one of the, you're still in the waxing phase. You're not quite there yet. You may be a day or two off. But for a day or two around full moon, the moon looks pretty full. It's hard to tell with your eye. Sometimes you can see that one corner of it looks a little bit dark still. Maybe one little portion of it up here will still look a little bit dark when you're getting really close to full moon. But it'll always be exactly opposite the sun in the sky. And what we'll see in the last section for this chapter is that's when we get, an ecl that's when we get lunar eclipses. All right, so rotation and revolution of the moon. The moon spins on its axis once every 27.3 days. It also rotates or revolves around the Earth once every 27.3 days. It's what we call a synchronous rotation. They're synchronized. They're exactly the same. So unlike the Earth, right? The Earth takes 24 hours, one day to spin on its axis, but it takes 365 days to go around the uh, sun. When things are synchronized like this, it means that the moon always keeps one side facing towards the Earth. So no matter when you look at the moon, you're always seeing that same half of it. Same side that's facing us. So when it's a full moon, you see those features, but you see the same features if it's a quarter moon or a crescent. You're seeing that same part of what you would have seen with the full moon. The other side of the moon never faces towards us. And we can't see it. And in fact, half of the moon, pretty much, is never visible from the Earth. So even though we've known about the moon, right, since ancient history, it's easy to see. People have known about it since very ancient times. There was a part of the moon that was never seen until 1959, 60 years ago. So 61 years ago, we did not know what the other side of the moon looked like. And 1959 is when Luna 3, uh, launched by the Soviet Union, actually flew around the moon and took our first images of the back side of the moon. What does it look like? It actually looks quite different than the front side for various reasons. Lots of craters, but when you see the moon, you see light and dark areas pretty much. You see some darker regions. Uh, we call those the seas. You see some lighter areas. Uh, they're seas, they're not water seas, but they look like it could be resemble seas. Uh, the backside pretty much doesn't have that. It's all just a lighter colored, heavily cratered area. So there are some differences between the two of them as well. But we didn't know anything about half of the moon. It's only been since late, not very late 1950s that we could even study that side, the, the far side of the moon. Now, I say that to qualify. We sometimes talk about dark side of the moon there really isn't a dark side of the moon. All of the moon gets sunlight at some point. But going back here, that same side facing us, so the whole moon gets sunlight here, 
the side facing away from us during new, new moon, the illuminated side is facing away from us. So the far side of the moon, which is far because it's always far for, for, further from the earth than the near side, is illuminated. On full moon, it's the near side of the moon that is illuminated. So when the Apollo missions landed on the moon, they landed in like these phases here, waxing gibbous into full. Okay? Because they wanted to, you wanted to land in daylight, not darkness. So if you landed here, if you waited till closer to new moon, you could still land on the moon, but now it's dark. Well, that makes it a lot harder to get images and things to be able to see. Um, also, you could land here. You could have landed on the far side, but then you got no communications, right? We're so used to here, we got all these communication satellites that we can talk to somebody on the other side of the earth. You can't without that. There's no satellites up there, so if you're trying to send signals to someone on this side of the moon, you can't. So the far side has been far less explored even by the others. Every single landing of the Apollo missions was on the near side of the moon. So until someday when there are communication satellites put in orbit around the moon, then it would be there. But back in the 1960s, not possible. And for convenience and safety, everything was put on the near side. So that's why they only lasted a short time. They only went there for a few days at a time because the phases go through pretty quickly. And once the sun sets, the moon has no atmosphere. You know, it gets colder here at night. It's really cold. It can go from hundred degrees, hundreds of degrees above zero to hundreds of degrees below zero when the sun sets. So very extreme changes in the temperatures as well. So that's why they went for a few days, generally around the time of full moon, but definitely a time when they were going to be fully illuminated for the entire, entire time. So not really a dark side. All of the moon gets the same amount of sunlight over the course of a month. There is a far side of the moon that has been much less explored. All right, the last thing I wanted to look at was talk a little bit about tides. And tides are caused by the moon. Tides are part of the gravitational force. If you remember, force equals gm1, m2, divided by r squared, divided by the distance between the two objects. For the most part, what is the distance between the objects? Well, generally, we consider it, you know, the center of the Earth to the center of the Sun. That's what we measure for the distance. Center of the Earth to the center of the Moon. However, the Moon and the Earth are relatively close together. So the distance between the Moon off over here and the near side of the Earth is a little bit smaller distance, meaning a little bit bigger gravitational force than the side over here. And the sun does the same thing. The gravitational force on this side, the near side, is going to be a little bit bigger than the gravitational force on the side further away. And what that means, these red arrows represent the over, overall gravitational force. So the sun or moon pulls with this much force on this side, this much force to the center, and this much force on the other side. If you take what we call the net force, in other words, relative to the Earth's center, we subtract out this force to balance it. So you can subtract out this force and find the net forces, what's left over. And if you subtract this smaller arrow from this bigger arrow, you get a little force pulling you in the direction of the moon. However, if you subtract this bigger arrow from this smaller arrow, you now get a negative. So you actually get force pushing away. 
So we get tides, we get high tides about 12 hours apart. Looking at just the moon for now, the moon is pulling water away on one side and essentially pushing it away on the other. So that's why you get high tides about 12 hours apart. And in between, you'd get the lower tides. So if the water is being pulled here, the water is going to be pulled. It's got to come from somewhere. New water just doesn't appear. The water comes from other areas that are then going to experience low tides, which would be opposite the direction. <coughs> now, this works for water. It also works for rock. The actual, the, the earth can be distorted by the moon. It's a minuscule amount. It may amount to like centimeters worth of distortion. It's very, very small. However, in the, in, out in the solar system, there are cases, and out in the universe, there are cases where it's really extreme. The tides can be really extreme to the point that you could rip things apart or you can actually stretch and contract solid rock. The tidal force could be that strong. We talk about things like black holes or very condensed stars. There are cases where this can happen and where a material can actually be ripped off of other objects. So it can be a lot stronger. In the case of the moon, it's not that strong, and the rock really doesn't move much. But the water does. The water flows, which gives us the tides. So you'd have a high tide here, and then as the Earth rotates, you'd go through a low tide, you'd go through a low tide section when you're up here, and back through a high tide. So you'd go high tide six hours later, roughly. We have low tide six hours later, high tide. There are some other variations that depend. It depends on where you are on the Earth. Certain areas get really good tides. Other places, depending on the geography, actually don't get much of a tide at all. So there are other you know, geological effects that, that occur as well that will tell you that you know, certain places you know, out on the oceans, you can get really big tides. Things can come in many meters. Right? Leave your stuff on the beach, and you can either get it washed away if you're not paying attention, or you can end up being way away from the water you know, just a few hours later as things come and go. Now, I'm talking about it in terms of the moon. I mentioned the sun does have a force as well. So the sun does the same thing. And I think the animation is distorted because it doesn't quite show it exactly the way I'd like to. I'm going to take a look at that. But the sun here and the moon, when you add them up, you know, the, the moon is about most of the tidal force. So it's the sun's is about half of what the moon does because the sun, even though it's more massive, is so much further away. But the yellow and the purple, they will subtract here working in opposites when the moon and the sun are opposite directions, and they'll add up together. So you can add them when they're in the same direction. So if you go to the beach near a new or full moon, the tides are going to be much more extreme than they are if you go during first and third quarter. So if you had gone to the beach this past weekend, you would have had unusually high tides and unusually low, low tides. Those are what we call spring tides when the, new, when the moon and the sun are working together. So spring, nothing to do with the season, just the spring tides are the higher tides that we would get during the new and the full moon. Now, they can also work opposite. When you're in other locations, such as first and third quarter here, then you have the moon pulling in one direction, the sun pulling in the other. The moon wins because it happens to be so much closer. But it wins by not as much as, it, as, as at other times. So if you go to the beach during first and third quarter, go to the beach next weekend, then you're going to have lower tides than normal. 
So the tides will be less extreme. Those are what we call the neap tides. Those are the weaker tides that occur at first and third quarter moon. In between, they're going to balance out, right? If you're at a crescent phase, you're pretty close to spring tides. You're going to have stronger tides. So the tides will be strongest now, and then they're going to slowly weaken over the next week. And then the following week, they'll slowly start to strengthen again and go back and forth. So the moon and the sun can add together to either give you stronger tides or they can fight against each other to give you weaker than normal tides. All right, so finishing up here, um, we talked about the phases of the moon and how that depends on the positioning of the sun and the moon, um, how specific phases are visible at specific times of day. You can see a full moon in the middle of the night. You're never going to see a crescent moon in the middle of the night. I'll qualify that, that if you're going up to the North Pole or something, or very northern Alaska, where the sun is up all night, then yeah, you can technically see a crescent phase of the moon in the middle of the night. Around here, you can't. Because it's always got to be close to the sun in the sky, and if the sun is way below the horizon, so is the crescent moon. So you're never going to be able to see that around here. And we talked about the tides and how they're called by, caused by the pull of the moon and the sun on the Earth. One side being a little bit closer, not much, but a little bit closer so that the gravitational force is stronger and not enough that the rock really moves, but the, but the water can actually move in response. All right, questions before we jump onto our other topic on the moon, which is eclipses. All right, well, let's go ahead and finish up. This is the last section for the exam. And then, if, as we have time, I'll go ahead and get started on the next unit, which is what we're supposed to actually cover this week. Um, why do we get eclipses? Eclipses occur when an object passes in front of another, but eclipses tend to be a little more specific th than that. They tend to be, we sometimes use the terminology differently, but there are we use an eclipse when things are almost exactly the same size. So it could be two little moons of Jupiter passing in front of each other. It could be this moon passing in front of the sun. And as a coincidence, we're about the only place in the solar system where from our location, the size of our moon or one of, our, or one of the moons of any of the other objects happens to be about the same size as the sun. So they just barely block out each other. Other objects can pass in front of the sun as well. Mercury and Venus, they're closer than the Earth to the sun. That means at some point they pass between us and the sun. So there are what we call transits of Mercury, transits of Venus. The last transit of Venus occurred in 2012, as I recall. And if you missed it, you're not going to see one because they don't occur very often. It's another 150 years before the next one's going to occur. So. Venus does not go past in front of the sun very often as seen, from, as seen from the Earth. Mercury a little bit more often. But they will block off just a small part of the sunlight. An eclipse can block off a large percentage of the sunlight or even all of the sunlight. And it's just a coincidence that we happen to have them very close to the same size. If the moon appeared a lot smaller than the sun, it might pass in front of it and it wouldn't dim the light completely. If it appeared a lot larger than the sun, if it was closer to us, it might block out the sun very easily. Wouldn't be such a big deal. The reason it's become such a big deal and had been in the past is that they're almost exactly the same size, so you can just 
barely block out the sun, meaning that's a relatively rare event to be able to see. So solar eclipses, especially a total solar eclipse like this where the sun completely blocks out the moon, is something that a lot of people have not seen. There are other types of eclipses where part of the, uh, part of the sun is blocked off, but a total solar eclipse is a very rare event. They occur every year, generally. Every year, or at least every other year, there will be a total eclipse somewhere, but they only occur on very specific parts of the Earth. So, if you remember, to August of 2017, we had a nice solar eclipse. If you happen to travel to certain locations, from Oregon through Missouri out to the Carolinas, there was a narrow path 20 or 30 miles wide where you could have seen something like this. Could have seen a total solar eclipse. If you were here, you saw about 75% of the sun blocked out. It wasn't bad. I didn't travel at all for that one. Um, but you could see, and it actually seemed to me to get a little dusky when at the height of the eclipse. It seemed a little darker than you'd expect for 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a bright sunny day. So you could see a little bit of a change. But if you're actually at the point of a total eclipse, it'll get dark. It's nighttime. All the sunlight is blocked out. You're only seeing some of this outer atmosphere of the sun. And that's it. There, there's our corona again. Right? Talked about the corona of the moon. This is the corona of a sun, which is completely different. Corona of the moon that we saw in our picture was caused by their atmosphere. If our atmosphere wasn't there, you'd never see it. The corona of the sun is actually the atmosphere of the sun. So you can see a solar eclipse, something like this. We had that one back in 2017. We had a lunar eclipse. Is it this year? January? I think it was January of this year, or was it last year? Now I'm trying to, I lose tra lost track of them. But there was one of the Januaries, I know it was right before classes started, that we had a nice lunar eclipse. So See, they timed themselves just right. You know, our solar eclipse was right like the week before classes started in 2017. Our lunar eclipse was right before, right around the time classes started um, in January, one of the years. So this is when the moon passes in front of the sun. This is when the moon passes into the shadow of the Earth. So I want to look a little at the geometry. What is actually happening there? What is the relative positioning? Well... This is for a lunar eclipse. There's our sun, there's the Earth, and there's the moon moving around. This is not even close to being to scale. So let's put there so you can see it, but you know, to scale, the moon's way off here, and the sun is you know, miles away down there, if you try to put that to scale. But the idea is still the same. The sun, the only thing that gives off light in the solar system, everything else that we see is reflecting light. The sun is the only thing that is producing light. So everything else is reflecting light. So when we see the moon, we're seeing sunlight. We see Jupiter, we see Venus, any other object in the solar system, it's reflecting light from the sun. That means that every object, just like the moon is always half illuminated, so is every other object as well. And every object is therefore casting a shadow. So half the Earth is illuminated, and half the Earth is cast, the rest of the Earth is cast, uh, casting a shadow cone out into the distance here. Now we divide the orbits, uh, the, the, the shadow, into two parts. There's the umbra, the darkest part of the shadow. If you are within the umbra, you do not see any sunlight. The sunlight is completely blocked off. So if you were standing on the moon right here, you would be looking, the Earth would be blocking out the sun. Essentially, you'd be seeing a, it would be a lunar eclipse to someone here on Earth. 
But if you were on the moon, it would be a solar eclipse. The moon would be, the sun, Earth would be blocking out the sunlight. If you were in the umbra, that's the darkest shadow that kind of tapers to a point out here. You can also have the penumbra. Penumbra is this cone, kind of inverted cone, spreading out. If you're within the penumbra, part of the, moon, of the sun is being blocked by the sun. The closer you are to the umbra, the more, of the, the more of the sun is being blocked. So if you're in here very close, a big chunk of the sun might be blocked. If you're way out towards the edge of this, you may just be taking off a little nip of the sun. Now this is a lunar eclipse. We can see the same thing for a solar eclipse. The only difference, if you see, there's the moon is on this side of the Earth. The other one, the moon is on this side of the Earth. Everything else will stay the same. So sunlight now filling the moon, so the side of the moon facing away from us is illuminated. That's not a good image either, but <laughs> because they're showing the wrong side of the moon facing away, but don't worry. Um, but the shadow goes back just as it did before. So this shadow goes back to the Earth. Now the moon's a lot smaller, so its shadow isn't as big. So its shadow doesn't envelop the entire Earth, but just fills this small area. So at this instant, if you were sitting right here on the coast of Africa, you're seeing a total solar eclipse. The sun is completely blocked out by the moon. That's the umbra again. That's the dark shadow. If you're in this wider area, which is a little bit lighter shadow, you're seeing a partial eclipse. So part of the sun is blocked off. And I'm going to show you some images of these coming up. But part of the sun is then blocked off. So anywhere here, you would be seeing a partial solar eclipse. And again, the closer you are to that central point, the, big, the better the eclipse you're going to be able to see. So if you looked at the eclipse of 2017, if you were down in the Carolinas, total eclipse into Virginia, okay, little bit, most of it was covered. If you're up here, even less. But if you move further north into New York, Boston, Maine, you got progressively less and less of the sun would be covered. So the closer you are to that central portion, the better the eclipse you're going to be able to see. Okay. So I want to look at the different types of eclipses. There's two, there's solar and lunar. But even within those, there are different types of solar eclipses. So as I said, if you traveled a little bit down to different areas, wherever the total eclipse was going to be, uh, in 2017, you would have had a chance to see something much like this. The entire face of the sun would be blocked and it would get dark. Nighttime, stars would come out, right? You're completely blocking it. So you can actually see the stars. Um, you know, any automated street lights and things would come on because it got dark all of a sudden and, the, and lights would, automatic lights would come on. So that is completely blocking the face of the sun. Now you can still see some of the sun, and once we finish, uh, get into the next unit, we'll actually talk about our sun as our introduction to stars. This is the outer atmosphere of the sun we call the corona. So the moon blocks part of the sun, but not all of it. This is always there, but it's not visible normally because it's so much fainter than the rest of the sun. But it's always, the sun always has this corona around it. It's just its atmosphere, we just can't see it. So that would be a total solar eclipse. You completely block out the sunlight. If you were around here, you saw, so would have seen something more like this. Actually, we got more to about three quarters of it blocked, but the moon was passing in front of it, 
And this may have been as much as, depending on where you were located, as much as was blocked out. Still, you know, quite a sight to have part of the sun being blocked out by the moon. But only a portion of it. The further north you went, the less and less you would have gotten to the point where just a little tiny nip of the sun was taken. Down to right outside of it, you would have had almost all of the sun blocked. Maybe only a tiny portion still, occur, still being visible. So you can have a total eclipse or you can have a partial eclipse based on where you are. The other type of solar eclipse that you can get is an annular solar eclipse. Annular, not annual, meaning annulus or ring. It's actually a ring eclipse when the moon, there's the whole side of the moon blocking out, and there is a ring of sunlight still visible. Remember, the sun and the moon are almost exactly the same size in the sky, apparently. But sometimes, they're all elliptical orbits, so sometimes the moon is closer to us, right? Perigee, it's going to look bigger if it's at perigee. It's going to look smaller if it's at apogee. It's things that are different distances change their apparent size. So if we are close to the sun, making it look a little bigger, and the moon is at its furthest, making it look a little smaller, it's not quite able to block out the sun. So even if things line up perfectly, you still get a whole ring of sunlight. An amazing sight, nonetheless. I mean, it won't get completely dark as it does with a uh, total solar eclipse. It depends on the exact amount and how much sunlight is left there. It'll still get definitely very dim, but it won't become nighttime like it would with a uh, total solar eclipse. But it just has to do with the distances. If the moon is a little bit further away, moon looks a little smaller, and it can't quite block out the sun. And that's why I said it's a coincidence that we happen to have them both at almost exactly the same size. If the moon was a lot bigger, you wouldn't get eclipses like this. It would always block out the sun. If the moon were a lot smaller, it would never block out the sun, and you'd always get things like this. All right, uh, lunar eclipses. Lunar eclipse, you can have a total lunar eclipse when the entire moon passes into the umbra. So this is an example of a total lunar eclipse. Occurs only at full moon. And you see, it looks like it should be the pattern that you're used to seeing for the moon there, lighter and darker areas of it. But it looks that deep red color, a deep blood red. Now, the sun disappears completely when the moon passes in front of it. When the moon passes into the Earth's shadow, it doesn't disappear completely. The Earth doesn't cast a very good shadow because the Earth isn't a very good solid object. Well, our surface is. Even the water is pretty good at casting a nice shadow. But our atmosphere causes difficulties. Light can bend through the Earth's atmosphere. So light coming around the Earth gets bent through the Earth's atmosphere and ends up in the umbra. So the umbra of the Earth is not completely dark. If we had no atmosphere, if we were just a solid ball, it would be. And the moon would disappear. At the height of a lunar eclipse, the moon would be gone. Not looking deep red, there would be no, no moon. It would not be visible. We'd have a little trouble breathing, too, with no atmosphere, but the effect of the moon would, be, would disappear completely as it moved into the shadow. But because we have an atmosphere, and the wavelengths that are scattered, best scattered into the shadow are the deepest red ones, when you get into the deepest part of the shadow, the, it'll look very red because that's the only light that is getting through there. So the moon will look rather red 
at the height of it. And sometimes they call that the blood moon. And that's just the height of a lunar eclipse. Essentially, at this point, the moon is not being directly illuminated by the sun, but indirectly by sunlight coming through around into the Earth's shadow. So that would be a total lunar eclipse. Total lunar eclipses are much easier to see because all you need, you don't have to be in the right spot. All you've got to be is in the right positioning that the moon's up. So if the eclipse occurs during the nighttime, you get to see it. It occurs during the day, you don't get to see it. So half the Earth pretty much gets to see a lunar eclipse anytime a total lunar eclipse occurs. So if you've seen an eclipse and didn't specifically travel for it, you're more likely to have seen a lunar eclipse at night than you are to see a total solar eclipse. You have to kind of, unless you happen to live in the right location, you've got to plan that to be there in the right, at the right time. Now, like solar eclipses, we can get different types of lunar eclipses. The total one is, of course, the greatest but you can also get a partial lunar eclipse. Here, part of the moon is in the umbra, but this portion of it out here is still being directly illuminated by the sun. So only part of the moon is within the umbra, and because it's so bright, you're actually losing out some of the deeper portions as well here. You're not quite seeing those. It's just as illuminated as this one was. It's just that you have this brighter portion that's overwhelming things. So you have a partial lunar eclipse. Part of the moon is in the shadow. Still a pretty good sight. Not as, not as great as a total, total lunar eclipse, but still a pretty nice sight. The one that's a little less exciting to see is what they call a penumbral lunar eclipse. And unfortunately, that's what we're having for the next couple years. I think this year and next, we're only going to get penumbral eclipses. There aren't really any good total lunar eclipses coming up for a couple of years. Uh, I put two images here because it's a little harder to see. There's the moon. These outlines here, these are representing the shadow of the Earth. So this is the outer part of the penumbra. This is the outer part of the umbra. So you'd have to be right inside this to get a total eclipse. And the moon just barely misses it. It will get a little bit fainter. And you can see here, this side versus this side, that it's a little bit fainter. But, you know, don't wait up to 3 in the morning to see it. It's, it's, it's kind of cool seeing part of it fade a little bit. But it's not, it's not stand out. You're not going to see the blood red of the moon that you would see during uh, a total lunar eclipse or even during a significantly uh, covered partial lunar eclipse. All right, so predicting eclipses. How do we go about predicting them? I said that a lunar eclipse occurs at a full moon. A solar eclipse occurs at a new moon. Well, we get a full moon every month. Generally, we get a new moon every month, most months at least, but we don't get an eclipse every month. If we did, eclipses wouldn't be as much of a big deal. Right? If, we had, if we had a lunar eclipse every month, even if it wasn't always visible to you, it's like big deal, it happens every month. If you had solar eclipses every month somewhere in the world, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But what we have is that the moon's orbit is tilted by about five degrees. Not very much, five degrees isn't a whole lot, but five degrees, the moon is about half a degree, the sun is about half a degree, so that's 10 times their size. So most of the time, the moon is way above the sun or way below the sun, and we don't get an eclipse. It's only when their paths on the sky overlap. So as you follow them along, there are gonna be two what we call nodes. 
During the nodes, the path of the moon and the path of the sun overlap, and at those points, the moon can pass in front of the sun or in front or into the Earth's shadow. So what you need is an eclipse to occur in this several weeks, three or four weeks, around the time when they cross. The closer the eclipse to the node, the better the eclipse, because everything's lined up better. If you're further away, you're more likely to just get partial or penumbral eclipses. You're not going to get a full eclipse. The best eclipse is going to be right at the middle of the eclipse season when those two nodes intersect, when, the, when, those, when those two paths intersect, giving us a node. And that means here, you've then got to wait about six months till the next node. So if an eclipse occurred this last weekend with a full moon, it didn't, in September, you could pretty much say there's not going to be another, another chance for an eclipse for six months. So March would be the next time to look for an eclipse. You can pretty much rule out October, November, December, January, February, and it wouldn't be until March, six months later, when you're near the other node. So really, there's only two eclipse seasons a year, and it really depends on the phases. If you happen to hit a full moon on one side of it or the other, it's not going to be a very good eclipse or a new moon on one side. It's when that occurs right at the middle that we get the best eclipses. But we can predict them. There are cycles, there are patterns that even the ancients knew about with how eclipses could occur. Couldn't be predicted precisely because there's a lot more that goes into it. But this is what we call the sorrow cycle, which is that equivalent eclipses occur every 18 years, 11 days, and 8 hours. So every 18 years or so, we're going to get an eclipse that was very similar to an eclipse that occurred. So we had August of 2017. We had an eclipse. 18 years of the, after that would be uh, still at the very end of August, adding 11 days to very end of August of 2025. There's going to be another eclipse very similar to the one that occurred in 2017. However, don't go looking for it around here because it's also eight hours meaning the Earth has rotated, rotated one-third of the way around. It'll be a third of the way around the world from us. But if you do three of these cycles, so after 54 years and 34 days, multiply that by three, then you're going to get the same eclipse. So 2017, that would mean, what, 2071, um, towards the end of September... There's going to be another eclipse, much like that one that went through the U.S. on August of 2017. Again, it'll be similar. It won't be exactly the same because there are other slight motions and other effects that change the positioning a little bit. But there will be a very similar eclipse that will occur about every 54 years from a location. So there was some prediction that could be made. But because the moon's orbit is not easy to calculate, it requires a lot of detail because you've got all sorts. You've got the Earth, not just the Earth pulling on it, but you've got the sun pulling on it. It can cause some uh, difficulties there. So you could make a good idea that the eclipse was likely and they knew roughly you know, when the seasons were. But to actually predict the existence of an eclipse long ago was very difficult. Today, it's easy. Right? We have all of the details of Newton's laws. We can calculate the forces between the Earth and the Moon and the Sun and the Moon, and we can figure out its orbit precisely. And I can tell you that on April the 8th of 2024, there's going to be an eclipse. There's going to be another solar eclipse that goes across the United States. 
Not the same, this one comes up, this is better for the east half of the US, it comes up through Texas and goes out through um, like Ontario and into Canada, into southern Canada. But it's another chance to be able to see one. But we can make that prediction because we know the orbits precisely, we can figure out exactly that they will line up and we can actually predict eclipses, you know, hundreds of years out, down to the second when they're gonna start. I mean, that's how accurately we know and how accurately we can calculate the positions of the sun and the moon, where they will be on the sky. So you can look up eclipses as to when eclipses are going to occur a hundred years from now and be able to determine those, something that couldn't be done long ago. All right, finishing up the section on eclipses, of course, is observing an eclipse. And we don't have any, any good eclipses coming this semester, unfortunately, but a lunar eclipse is the easy one. You don't need anything to be able to go out and see it. You can go out and look at a lunar eclipse. Uh, you, don't need to see a you don't need a telescope, and in fact, uh, honestly, with the eclipses, especially the lunar eclipse, it's better to watch with your naked eye anyway and see it that way. Instead of watching, trying to watch it through a telescope, um, you can just watch as the moon moves into the shadow of the Earth. You can watch part of it darken, and then when it gets deep enough in, you'll start to see that deep red color. Now, a solar eclipse, of course, is more dangerous uh, because you don't want to look at the sun. Right? Normally, our instincts kick in. If you try to look at the sun, if you go out after class and try to look at the sun, it's so bright, it hurts, you, you, you stare away from it. You black block your eyes instinctively. You can't just go out there and stare at the sun. During an eclipse, if you block out 90% of the sun's light, it's not quite so painful. doesn't mean it's less dangerous. That little bit of the sun is still very dangerous to look at. It's still just as hot, putting out just as much uh, energy per little unit of the surface as any other portion of the sun. And, you know, without fail, after in each eclipse, there will be a number of people who will actually have looked at the sun and, you know, depending on how long they've looked at, can actually get the image burned into their retina. It's permanent. So it's not even something that you can do surgery to fix. It is a permanent damage to the eye. So you really never want to look at the surface of the sun at all. I mean, if you're glanced at it for a second, it's probably not going to hurt you, but sitting there and staring at it, that image will burn itself in. Now, some of the things that you can do, there are specific solar filters that you can use. And the big thing in 2017, places would sell the glasses that you could put on. If you ever tried wearing a pair of those and looking at anything other than the sun, you can't see a darn thing. They're not like sunglasses. Sunglasses are not sufficient um, to really protect your eyes. But those things, if you try looking around, it's blackness. You cannot see anything. They block out almost all of the sunlight, and they especially block out the most damaging rays. Although you do want to check them. You don't want to save those ones for years and years because they do deteriorate, and you don't want to find out later that they deteriorated too much. Um, so there are solar filters. You can also get solar filters for telescopes that will work. Uh, can be a little expensive depending on the exact filters and what you're using, but they can filter out all of the dangerous types of light and enough of the light that you can actually look at the sun through a telescope. That's a little expensive side. Cheaper way is a pinhole camera. Just need a piece of cardboard, pinhole in it, and you can adjust it, make it into a little camera and project the sun's image onto the sidewalk or onto another piece of cardboard. Nothing wrong with looking at the eclipse sun. It's looking at it directly. You can look at an image of it just fine. So that's another way that you can do that. And one of the best ones, I say, is usually to find the local amateur group. If there's a solar, they'll have stuff out there. They'll have telescopes set up. They know the right equipment. 
And they'll have knowledge to be able to explain things to you as to what's going on there if there's something you want. So if you see about an eclipse coming in, often that will be a good thing to do. Now, technically, it is actually fine to observe the totally eclipsed sun with your eye. Entire surface of the sun is blocked out, but I don't recommend it just because you need to know exactly when that eclipse is starting and ending. Once that little bit of the sun starts to come out, you don't want to be staring at it. But when it's totally eclipsed, during that total eclipse, which might last a couple minutes, might last you know, a little longer, might last you know, five or ten minutes at the most, then it's perfectly safe to look at. Again, I still would not recommend it. You're still better off using other things like filters just for safety because you don't want to, you know, permanent damage to your eye is not something you really want to do. All right, so finishing up, talked about the different types of eclipses, solar eclipses, moon passing in front of the sun, lunar eclipsing, the moon passes into the Earth's shadow. We can get eclipses elsewhere. We'll talk about them with other planets. Uh, where planets pass in front of their stars, we sometimes call those eclipses. Um, but we can look at some other cases as well. And they do not occur every month, but there are very predictable patterns that we can use to be able to predict. And now I can tell you, you know, specifically exact dates and times and exactly down to the second when an eclipse will occur. All right. Questions? That's where we end for exam-wise. We'll go through eclipses, chapter 4. That's the end. Yes? Did you say the solar eclipse that would happen at a full moon or the new moon? The solar eclipse will occur at the new moon. The lunar eclipse is always at the full moon. Yep. Others? Otherwise, I'm going to try to get started just briefly on our section for the week. We've got about 15 minutes left, looks like. So let me go ahead and get we're started. Probably by next week, we'll actually be caught back up. But we can at least go through the beginning of this and look a little bit about light. Again, on this I'm not testing you on on Wednesday. I won't be asking you it, but this is what we were supposed to cover today in any case. So what we want to look here is we come to our last of the, next to the last of the introductory material, kind of the background material that we need. We'll look at this, and then the next week we'll go over, the, finish this and talk about telescopes, and then we'll be able to actually start talking about more astronomical objects. But light is really how we learn about things. Through light, when I talk about light, you think invisible light, the stuff that we see. Um, but the entire electromagnetic spectrum is all the wavelengths of light. So we're used to this, right? The rainbow that we see, red through violet, that's visible light. This entire area here is what we call the electromagnetic spectrum. So. This little bit, if you see, is actually enlarged from this little tiny section right here. That is the portion that our eyes happen to be sensitive to. So it's all the same type of light. So we can have gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet, infrared, microwaves, and radio waves. They're all the same as visible light. The only difference is their wavelengths and their energies. So x-rays are really no different than visible light. They just got a lot higher energy. They're more penetrating, right? We use x-rays to be able to see through, to set a broken bone and things like that, or to x-ray your uh, teeth. So, but they're the same thing. They're exactly the same thing. They're created by charged particles that move. So if they have a higher energy when they're moving, they're going to create higher energy electromagnetic radiation. So electromagnetic radiation is not just the light that we can see, but includes all of these. 
in terms of astronomy. A hundred years ago, visible was all there was. The other things existed, but we couldn't see them. Lots of these don't get through our Earth's atmosphere, right? fortunately. We don't really want to walk outside and be bombarded by X-rays and gamma rays from space. There wouldn't be any life here on Earth if you were constantly being bombarded by X-rays. They're hitting us. They're hitting the Earth's atmosphere all the time. But our atmosphere blocks them out, absorbs them, so we don't actually uh, get hit by those. Right? We know what happens if you get enough of the ultraviolet light, and that's actually only the ultraviolet light right here. It's what gets you sunburned. That's that very near, what we call near ultraviolet, right next to the visible. So you can imagine what, you know, getting this other ultraviolet or further out into these would be very, very damaging. Um, so a lot of these we've had to wait for satellites to be able to come up to, be, to observe. Radio waves do make it down to the Earth's surface, but we had to wait for different technologies to be able to detect them that we didn't have 100 years ago. So what is light? Is it a wave or is it a particle? Turns out the answer is both. It is a wave and it is a particle at the same time. So it has, it has characteristics of waves. We can talk about light in terms of characteristics of waves, things that it has crests and troughs, right? like a water wave. If you watch water waves, they come up, they go down. They have a wavelength, how far it is between successive peaks. They have an amplitude, how high they go. Light waves can be described the same way. Wavelengths can be determined for visible light or for x-rays or for radio waves. And they also have a property that if you take their wavelength and their frequency and you multiply them together for any wave, you get the velocity of the wave. So sound waves, if you measure the wavelength and the frequency with which I'm speaking, you can multiply that wavelength and the frequency to get the speed of sound in this room. For light, you multiply them, you always get the same number, 300,000 kilometers per second. That is the speed of light in a vacuum. So light, regardless of what type it is, if it's visible light or x-rays or radio waves, always travels at 300,000 kilometers per second in a, in a vacuum. So some ways that light acts like a wave, interference, reflection, refraction, diffraction that we talked about earlier today, and the Doppler effect, which we'll talk about next week at the end of this chapter. So some things you're probably familiar with, light acts like a wave in terms of reflecting off things like mirrors. It refracts, it can get bent through things that have uh, different densities, like a straw looks broken when it's looking at it through a glass of water. It's broken, but it's not really. It's the light getting bent. And one of the common ones is called inter is interference, that the waves can interfere with each other and either add or cancel to each other. You see this with waterways. You go to a water park in the summer. They've got a big wave pool, create big waves at the front, water waves. Some places they add together and you get these monster waves, right? Five, six feet high or something. In other places, there's no waves. Even though you've got a big wave, you know, a few meters away. The waves are the same going throughout, but if you have a big wave, a big crest hitting from one wave at the same time a trough is hitting from the other, they add up to nothing and you get no wave. So there are parts within that wave pool that you can stand and just have little ripples coming by, even though massive waves may be off to either side of you. That's an example of interference. They can interfere, interfere positively, adding together, giving you those real big waves, or they can cancel each other. 
So you do this with things like sound, right? You have noise-canceling headphones that are doing something similar. You can measure what the sound is coming in, invert it, and send two really loud sounds into your ears, but they cancel. They block out, and nothing actually makes it in. Send a very high crest at the same time you send in a trough to cancel it, then you can cancel those two waves out. So light has these same things, and light will do things like interfere with each other. You can have light waves that will interfere and add together or subtract from each other as well. Light can also behave like a particle. So one of the ways it behaves as a particle, we talk about photons, they're bits of energy. They're little packets of energy. So they're a particle much like an electron or a proton or other parts of the atoms that we'll talk about. And they have a specific energy which depends on their frequency. Frequency and wavelength are very much related to each other. If you take the uh, frequency is very high, high frequency is a lot of energy, short wavelength is a lot of energy. So very short wavelengths one would have a lot of energy. The H is just a constant, uh, one of the physical constants. We don't need to worry about the details, it's just some number. So light can behave as a particle in the case of gravity. gravity. It's deflected by gravity. Waves shouldn't, wouldn't be deflected by gravity. Particles will be. So in that case, it's behaving like a particle. And we also have this is what's known as the photoelectric effect. If you send wavelengths in of a sufficient energy, they can kick electrons off of a metal and cause a current to flow. Right? Flowing electrons would give you a current. So if you get a certain wavelength here, they'll come through, knock these off. However, you could, if you have a little bit too little energy, if those photons are not of the right wavelength, so if you example, if these were infrared photons you sent in, get a big infrared beam throwing billions and billions of infrared photons every second, if that's not enough energy, if one of those is not enough energy to kick the electron off, nothing will happen. Behaving like a particle. But if you get just the right frequency or more, so if it's red light or yellow light or something with more energy, then all of a sudden the electrons get kicked off, even if you just have a little flashlight shining at it with that color light. So you can have a whole big searchlight beam of the wrong wavelength, too, too, short of a, too long of a wavelength, nothing happens. A little bit of just the right wavelength or more will give you sufficient energy. This is what Einstein actually studied and gave him his Nobel Prize, was for studying the photoelectric effect, that light was not only behaving like a wave, but was behaving like a particle as well. All right, so electromagnetic spectrum. We have, again, I showed you this at the beginning. This is the same thing, just going the other direction, gamma rays down through radio waves here. And again, this is what we see. There's the optical portion that we can see. There's the radio window, which opened up in the 1930s when we finally developed radio telescopes. So before that, everything that we knew about the universe was from this, from optical-type telescopes that we're used to looking at. And as we'll look at in the next chapter, we'll start talking about all these different types. But now we have gamma-ray telescopes, X-ray telescopes, ultraviolet, infrared, uh, microwave, radio, and radio wave telescopes, in addition to optical telescopes. Gives you a complete picture. If we study the sun in just one color of light, in just green light or just blue light, we get a partial picture. If we look at it with all the colors of the rainbow, we get a complete picture of it in the visible. If we want to study other objects, we really need to study everything. The sun gives off X-rays and gamma rays, and it gives off radio waves. 
to really understand it, we need to look at it across the spectrum. So we want to look at all of those, and the problem is we can't from the Earth. Gamma rays and X-rays get blocked by our atmosphere. Fortunately, you don't get X-rayed every time you walk out. Um, a lot of the infrared, you've got to get up into airplanes or balloons. You've got to get up higher above the water vapor in the atmosphere. And for many things, you've got to get, you really have to get up into orbit. So it wasn't until the 1960s and 70s that we actually had satellites and telescopes that could be put up into orbit to observe these other wavelengths. But we'll look at those when we start talking about other objects. All right, uh, temperatures. I'm going to take a little aside here and talk about temperature, and I'm probably going to finish up there, even though it's in the middle of a section, before I get into the radiation laws, which are kind of the last section. I want to be able to take time on those next week. So what, what is temperature? And there's a difference between temperature and heat. We sometimes use them interchangeably. High temperature means a lot of heat. Well, it can, but not necessarily. Temperature is really, the definition is the measure of the average kinetic energy of particles. Kinetic energy is just a way of saying how much energy. It's really saying how fast they're moving. So temperature is just how fast particles are moving. Faster they're moving, the higher the temperature. The slower they're moving, the lower the temperature. By that means, if you slow things down and slow things down and slow things down, you can stop eventually, theoretically, if you stop their motion. That's the coldest temperature you can possibly get. If something's, not, if something's not moving at all in any way, how can you slow it down more? You can't. Once it stopped moving, you cannot slow it down anymore. That's what we call absolute zero. Absolute zero, the actual temperature of it, depends on the temperature scale that you're using. So Celsius, it's negative 273 degrees. So no matter how cold it gets out there in the winter, you're not getting anywhere near absolute zero. Fahrenheit, it's like negative 450 degrees. The Kelvin scale, which is what astronomers use, it's zero. We actually set the Kelvin scale up. It's exactly like the Celsius scale, except it's offset by 273 degrees. So on Kelvin, you cannot get any colder than zero. Zero is the absolute limit for temperature. That would mean that theoretically nothing was moving. Out in the depths of space, we still have a temperature of about three degrees Kelvin, about three Kelvins. So even if you're out in the depths of space, nothing is exactly zero. Nothing ever completely stops moving, but you can get pretty darn close. Uh, in terms of Kelvin, it's exactly the same that you can go zero degrees Celsius is when uh, water freezes. It would be 273, degree, 373 Kelvin. 100 degrees Celsius would com be comparable to 373. They're essentially the same. And when we talk about have hot objects, things like the sun at 6,000 degrees, yeah, a couple hundred degrees really doesn't matter a whole lot. So I'm usually referring to them in Kelvin. We talk about the center of the sun and we talk millions of degrees. Again, I'm referring to Kelvin, but there really isn't much of a difference between the Kelvin and the Celsius scale. So just to give you an idea of what we mean by temperature as compared to heat, heat there. And I'll finish up next week. I'll come back and probably review this one more time, and then we'll move on to the radiation laws. But I'm essentially out of time here, so don't forget exam is next time, chapters one through four. And if you're doing the review quizzes, make sure you get those done before you come to class because they will lock as the 
class starts, they will actually lock up. So you can get those done. And if you have a homework you're turning in to me, that's great. If you're still using the information from today to turn that in, that's fine. Just get it up on uh, D2L sometime by 6 o'clock tomorrow. And if there are questions tomorrow or as you're looking for the exam, do feel free to email me. All right. Have a great day. I'll see you Wednesday.